0: Thanks Kylie. G'day everyone again. We're going to have a look at that passage today and in the second last of this series in uh, the upper room where Jesus is discussing uh, his his leaving with his disciples and going to the cross. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, what is it that brings you joy from day to day? What is it that really uh, brings joy to your heart? What is it that gets you going in that regard? Uh, for me, of course, and I'm allowed to use this because it's the second last time, sporting analogies. I love going to sport uh, and uh, that brings me much joy. And it brings me much joy to remember old sporting highlights. That's what I do when I'm feeling a bit down. I get on and I have a look at old cricket matches from years gone by and it just, it just... Brings, brings joy to the heart right there and if you want to know what they are I can show you later if you want and um, we can sit down and watch them. Um, but also what brings great joy is, is, is seeing, uh, well for me anyway, seeing my own kids succeed in various different ways but, but thinking of sport in their sporting endeavours as well. I remember Leith having a great day out up at Alfred's Point one particular day after a hard time in the sporting environment. Uh, Jarrah shooting so well in a grand final uh, of, uh, of netball on one occasion and Balin smashing the ball around in the game of cricket as well. It, just, it, it does bring the joy to a father's heart. And it might do in all sorts of different ways for you. But where does your joy come from? More to the point, what about your joy in the Christian life? Where does it come from? Jesus here wants to talk to his disciples about their joy. As you remember, last week we heard how hard it will be to be a follower of Jesus in this world. Jesus told them how hard it would be to stop them from falling away, so that they would stick with Jesus. But today we find out the joy that comes with following Jesus in a difficult world. We're going to have a look at this passage, and in many ways, there's lots we could say about it, and I'm going to skate over the top. So as a result, if you want to have an ask of a question a bit later on, we're going to give some time to do that, slido.com, hashtag is HBSP. Let me pray, and I'll uh, dive into this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word for the uh, recording of these words from Jesus. Please may you help us to listen to them and put them into practice. And to learn from them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the disciples of Jesus, as we know, in this upper room, were worried. I don't know what it would have exactly been like, but the picture I get is it's a smallish room, perhaps. They've all been eating together. It's probably pretty humid in the Middle East at that time. Nice and warm. Perhaps getting ready to go to sleep. It's getting later in the evening and the tension is rising. And the disciples are worried because, as we heard in chapter 14, Jesus is going and they don't know where he's going to. In fact, in this chapter, chapter 16, they still don't know. It's funny, isn't it? We know because we've understood the Bible that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross and prepare a way for his people to be with the Father. But they don't know it yet. And almost comically, in verse 17 of chapter 16... We see this play out. Some of his disciples said to one another, what's this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me and a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying to each other, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. They don't get it, do they? What's he talking about? And we'll see in a moment, even when they think they get it, they don't get it either. But Jesus keeps saying what to them must have sounded so, so strange. Jesus says, I'm leaving you. But they don't know why. And they don't really know where. And the best that Jesus has said is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet Jesus keeps saying, it's going to be better if I'm not with you. How could that be? Well, look at chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We've already met the helper a chapter or so earlier, the promised Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go so that the Holy Spirit will come. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come. And if I don't go, the Holy Spirit and his particular task will not be able to be achieved. Now, of course, as we said a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is a a vastly misunderstood character, a vastly misunderstood member of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And over the last hundred or so years, the Holy Spirit has been given huge amounts of attention as different arms of the Christian faith have had debates about the nature of Of the Holy Spirit. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, many of us have come from those backgrounds that are a little different. It's important for us just to read the text of Scripture on its own, as we'll do today, and see what it is that Jesus Himself is saying about the Holy Spirit. We want to take the passage on its own terms. Of course, that's what we do when we read the Bible, isn't it? My hope is that I've done anything over 12 years. As I've spoken God's word to you, I have prepared you not just by preaching a nice sermon that you can go away with for your week, but I've prepared you by showing you how to read the scriptures for yourself. And the way we do that is we read the passage on its own terms, in its context, and then expand out to other passages that we know. What we like to do, though, with the Holy Spirit, is we like to bring in everything we know straight away. And it muddies the waters a little bit. So let's have a look here at the role of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus says he will do when he comes. First of all, we see that the Holy Spirit has a dual role, one for the world and one for the disciples. Let's begin with the role for the world. Look at verses 8 to 11. And when he, the Holy Spirit, the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, it's a little bit of a complicated passage, isn't it? What is it saying? Well, verse 8, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come and convict. It's It's a legal word, if you like, to bring to the attention, to lay it out, to make it clear. Regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And we're told that the Holy Spirit will lay it out and make it clear about sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit will bring knowledge of sin to the world. As Jesus did. Of course, this is why people got annoyed with Jesus. He pointed out their sinfulness. And none of us like it when that happens. But without a knowledge of sin, there can be no salvation. See, it's wrong for us to think, isn't it, that Jesus' addition to our life is just going to be a way to uh, fulfil our life or make our life better. No, Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. Without sin, we have no need for Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world regarding sin. Secondly, he'll come and convict the world regarding righteousness. Again, this is what Jesus did, didn't he? He came and was perfectly God in the world with us. And what happens when that perfect righteousness is in the world? Well, human beings react against it and want to go in the opposite direction. And so without Jesus on the the earth, the Holy Spirit will come and will convict the world regarding righteousness, make righteousness known when the perfect one, Jesus, is not there. This will happen imperfectly, Through the people of God. And then judgment. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about judgment. And you notice there in verse 10, uh, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father, because I'm going to the cross, all of this will happen. Sin, righteousness and judgment will be known through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the role of the Holy Spirit, to make the world aware. That they have turned their back on Jesus, that he is perfectly righteous. And if they don't turn to him, there will be judgment. Now, as we already know from this section, this will happen as the disciples will speak about Jesus in the world by the help of the Holy Spirit. But the conviction is not in the hands of the disciples, but the Holy Spirit himself. See, this is good news for us, isn't it? Because as we've been called, as chapter 14 says, to do the greater works of speaking the message of Jesus into this world and seeing people come to new life, it does not depend on us to give the results. The conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment does not lay in our hands, but in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And so we can trust that God is at work by his Holy Spirit in the lives of people as we speak The message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the world in all of these areas. So this is what the Spirit will do in the world. Convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. But but what about for believers? Well, for believers, he will glorify the Son. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that, uh, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Put simply here, as verse 14 says, the job and role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to point to Jesus. As you know, we're packing up our house, boxes and things coming off the walls and it's all a bit blank in the house at the moment and boxes everywhere. Uh, and one of the things that's come off is, is this painting, this painting that I picked up uh, uh, a decade or so ago on a trip to, to South Africa for a conference. And this is a picture of, of, uh, that's been in my office uh, to remind me of that trip and some of the ministry that I was able to conduct in that place. But as I pulled that uh, painting down from the wall, it reminded me of the the role of the Holy Spirit. Stick with me, but this is how it works. You see, if I was to show off this painting and maybe sell it off, you know how it works when they bring the painting in to sell it off, and they bring it in and they walk it along like this. And for what it's worth, I've got to shout because you can't quite hear me from where I am behind this painting. And all you can see is my lovely legs below this painting as I bring it in. And the work of the Holy Spirit is quite like me bringing this painting in and out. The work of the Holy Spirit is vital, holding up the message and person of Jesus. But it's not the focus. He is not the focus himself. The focus is the painting. The focus is Jesus. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit to, if you like, carry in the painting so that we might see Jesus clearly. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, to guide the disciples into all the truth. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit is unimportant, but vital. It's just that the Holy Spirit is not our focus. It's not his focus. The focus of the Holy Spirit is Jesus. As verse 14 says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, of course, this is one of these little sections where we have to apply it to the first disciples in the upper room and then to us. As it says in verse 12, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you. They're the people in the room, but you cannot bear it now. As we said a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit's role is to help the disciples in the room with Jesus to recall all the things that Jesus said so that they might be able to write them down. The words of the scriptures that we have today, we call it inspiration. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't work in the same way for us. But he points us to the words that have been written by those first witnesses, the apostles, that speak about Jesus. But I want you to notice here, right throughout the upper room, what it is that the Holy Spirit does is deeply rational. Teaching, reminding, giving knowledge about Jesus, helping us to understand the truth. And for many today, the role of the Holy Spirit is not rational and objective. It's irrational and subjective. But that's not how it's to be. The role of the Holy Spirit is to teach and remind and to know the truth. And that's why the the Holy Spirit's work and the work of the preaching of God's word is so central. It's why the First disciples of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they knew that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is why, for us, we cannot make any claim to have any authoritative statements from God to us that God told me, but only I feel that God has told me because we've got all God has told us in his word to us. The words of the apostles who are reminding us by the Holy Spirit of what Jesus has come to do. The Holy Spirit will glorify the Son by allowing these first disciples to write down the words of Jesus so that we might dine out on them over and over and over again as we point to Jesus Christ. Well, from here, Jesus turns to what's going to happen when he goes away from them. As he says in verse 16, A little while and you'll see me no longer, and after a little while you will see me. This is the statement that confused the disciples. But whether it's confusing or not, they understand that he's going away. And you can imagine their sorrow. First of all, Jesus says, I'm going away. And then in just a little bit's time, they work out that he's going away to a cross. Imagine the sorrow. But Jesus says to them here, Your sorrow will turn to joy, verse 20. How could that be? Well, at this time, the disciples in the room don't know. They've got no idea. But we know. Though Jesus would go to the cross and die a horrible death, he would be raised and vindicated and victorious. And though he would go away, he would come back to be with them again and then send his Holy Spirit to be with them forever. And what a wonderful thing it is that Jesus told them all of this in advance. This is not catch up. This is plan A. Not plan B, C, D or E. This is what was planned all along. You will have sorrow, sure, but it will turn to joy because it's all planned out. And for us, of course, we've never had Jesus with us physically. And in this world, we never will. And sometimes as we live the Christian life and we go through this life, we can feel alone and disillusioned and discouraged, disheartened. We can feel full of sorrow like the disciples did. And yet Jesus wants to say to us the same thing. That there is joy for the follower of Jesus. That's not because it's a nice big Disney picture where everything turns out well in the end. After all, we saw last week there will be trouble and hardship in this world for the follower of Jesus, but we can have joy for the same reason the first apostles could have joy, because Jesus is raised and victorious and is alive, and Jesus has sent his promised Holy Spirit to all who trust in him, not just to be with us, but to be in us and to point to Jesus in his word. And to give us confidence as we speak about Jesus in this world. And so for the same reasons as the first disciples, we too can have joy. Jesus is alive and raised and victorious. And Jesus has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. Does this bring you a great joy? Like I said, this is not life is going to be okay. Life is going to work out but it's the same joy of the apostles who even in the book of Acts after they found themselves under persecution and let out of that situation of persecution ran down the street with joy. Why? Not because they were let go free but because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. See, joy is different to happiness, isn't it? Joy is that feeling of content that we know that we're on the side of victory. But so often... If you're like me, our head is so buried in this world that we find it hard to lift our head up out of this world to see the joy that Jesus has given us. And if your head is buried in this world, like mine so often is, then you'll also find it hard to pray. Jesus draws a direct connection, doesn't he, between prayerfulness and joy. Look at verse 23. In that day of joy you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I don't know if too many Christians that I speak to today find prayer easy. Let's just say it's a smaller group than the group that finds it hard. Because most of us find it hard, don't we? Hard to pray. Why? I mean, I do. Why is it like that? It's because our heads are stuck in this world, isn't it? And we are self-reliant and we have everything we need. Uh, But according to Jesus here, there is a direct connection between prayerfulness and joy. What does that look like? Well, the reason we pray is, is not just to ask God for stuff, but to rely on God. And when we're in that sweet spot of relying on our Heavenly Father, then is when the great joy comes. We're living in the sweet spot of what God has made us to be, reliant people upon Him. And that is why in your life and mine, the hardest times in life are often also the times of greatest joy. Why? Because we're relying on God and trusting Him and praying to Him. And so Jesus says to his people in the upper room and also to us, there is joy to be had because Jesus is raised victorious and alive. He has given us his Holy Spirit. So trust him, come to him in prayer and you'll find the joy that he offers. Well, finally, in this little section, up until this point, Jesus has spoken in veiled language, hasn't he? Look at verse 25. There's a classic little section. You're allowed to laugh at it too, I think. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, it's always strange, isn't it? We we find it strange that Jesus didn't talk uh, plainly uh, throughout his ministry. He spoke in riddles and parables. He didn't speak clearly. uh, And we wonder why that's the case. After all, we're supposed to speak clearly about Jesus, but we have to remember that his ministry came over the period of a three uh, over a three-year period. Imagine a movie that would go like that. I sat down to watch a movie with Kel last night. Imagine if the movie went like this: first minute of the movie, good guy introduced; second minute of the movie, bad guy introduced; third minute of the movie, bad guy gets beaten by the good guy, and it's all over. Now, some of you might go, "That's a great movie. I'm really happy to watch that." But there's a journey, isn't there, along the way where things are filled out about the characters and you understand more of the narrative story and what's going along. And so it is in the life of Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus is a real person. He's not a story or a movie or a book. He was a real person living a real life. But as he lived that real life, And had those real experiences and people really interacted with him. Some of those things about his character needed to come out. And if we'd have found it out all at the beginning, well there would have been no space for the disciples then, the crowds then or us today to have learnt from what Jesus had done. And so Jesus speaks in parables and in figures of speech and in veiled language in order that people might find out over time what he is like. And so in verse 26, he says in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I'll ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I have believed and have believed that I came from God and I came from the father and I've come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the father. I don't know about you, but as I read those three verses again, and I've studied them this week, I was confused by reading them. <laughs> Were you? But The disciples weren't. Look at them. Verse 29, his disciples say, Ah, alright, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures Could you imagine, Jesus is probably just going, <laughs> Seriously, guys. Seriously, you're not using figures of speech. Well, little do they know that they don't actually understand. Jesus himself says, doesn't he, in the last part of this passage, You know what? You'll actually abandon me. You'll be scattered. You don't know what you're talking about, guys. And yet... Though all of that is the case, he leaves them with a word of peace in verse 33. He says, I say these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He could blast them, couldn't he, but he doesn't. He has a word of peace for them. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Not making the world an easier place, but making the world a victorious place for all who trust in Jesus And sometimes we can wonder, does Jesus really love me? Am I good enough to belong to Jesus? And this word is similarly a word of peace for us. Verse 33, take heart, there will be trial in the world, but I have overcome the world. Jesus is the one who is victorious. And so Jesus is setting up his disciples in the room here for when he is not with them physically. And he's giving them a helping hand. But he's also helping us, showing us that our life does not need to be dominated by sorrow, but by joy. A joy that comes by knowing that Jesus is alive and he's given the gift of the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus and he has overcome the world. And So we need to know this, brother or sister in Christ, life is not promised to be easy. The circumstances of life might be tough. And there may be persecution that comes as a result. But Jesus has told us all of this up front before we get anywhere so that we might know the joy that comes in Christ. So where does your joy come from? Does it come from the risen Saviour who has gifted His Holy Spirit to you? Does it come in the fact that Jesus has overcome the world so that you might have Peace in a world of trial and tribulation. See, Jesus didn't leave us without his words to us. To give us steel in our spine. To give us hope in our heart. And to give us joy in all of our being. As we follow the Lord Jesus day by day. Well, next week. As we turn for our last sermon in this series, we'll turn to see how Jesus prays for the world and and prays for you and for me even today as well. But in the meantime, let's have a couple of questions and then we'll sing our final song. Uh, The instructions for the questions are on the screen. Well, good. No questions today. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us in this part of your word, preparing us for the world in which we live as we seek to follow Jesus. And we pray, please, uh, that you would continue to bring us uh, great joy as we follow the Lord Jesus, the risen, victorious, overcoming the world, Lord Jesus. And we pray, please, that you would remind us that... The gift of your promised Holy Spirit is with us and in us if we belong to you. And so we, uh, we pray, please, that this great fact would bring us joy in all, that we, uh, in all that we do, even when life is hard and full of tribulation. Please remind us of the joy that comes in belonging to and knowing the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. <coughs> please stand. We're going to sing our last song together, The Love of the Father.